This is a crowd podcast. The first time I saw them, I almost puked. Gruesome, horrific, tragic. Once seen, they cannot be unseen. Those are the lawyers for Staff Sergeant Frank Wooderich. And they're talking about the single most compelling evidence in the entire Haditha investigation. Actually, they're talking about the only real evidence in the entire Haditha investigation. The photographs. There were about two dozen photographs taken at every location where civilians were killed in Haditha. The worst, by far, are the ones in House 2. Over the next two episodes, we're going to dive into those photographs, examine them, in the words of Mike Maloney, right down to the pixel, and see how they offer clues to what happened in the back bedroom of House 2. But first, I want to tell you the story of how they came to be, and the one Marine, without whom they would not exist. All right. At this point, the government will call their next witness. He's already here in the courtroom. If you'd like to identify him, please. Yes, Your Honor. The government calls uh, Mr. Wright as our next witness in order. I'm Michael Epstein, and you're listening to my podcast about the longest, most expensive criminal investigation in Marine Corps history. Murder in House 2. Episode 2. The Photographs. We have something in crime scene reconstruction we call the um, archaeologist paradox. And we're actually very similar to archaeology. That's former NCIS Special Agent Mike Maloney. He and his partner, Special Agent Tom Brady, were in charge of the forensic reconstruction in Haditha. Basically, what that means is Mike and Tom had to take all the evidence collected during the investigation and figure out the sequence of events at each location where civilians were killed. What happened, and in what order. The only problem was that the Marine Corps hadn't collected any evidence at any of the crime scenes. They hadn't even treated the incident like a crime, which made Mike and Tom's job exponentially harder. We go into a crime scene, and we don't get the whole picture. We get isolated snapshots because this bullet case is here, this blood is here, and this is what it means. That's the same thing an archaeologist does. When they remove the layers of soil, they don't come up with a pristine village with all the walls and things intact. They find something here that indicates it was a well, pot shards here that indicate that this was a bakery. So I thought it would be rather hypocritical of me to say, this is four months old, we're not going to find anything, when archaeologists find things hundreds of years later. Thousands. Thousands of years later. So so I was going in there wishing that we had gotten to the scene when it was pristine, but recognizing that these are the limitations we have. What can we find? Let's talk about those limitations. The Marines didn't tape off the crime scene and dust it for fingerprints. They didn't collect rifles from every Marine involved. They didn't take witness statements. They didn't do anything. And why would they? This was war. And bad things happen in war. There's to be a two-story structure that is uh, stucco, mortar, stone uh, construction. Heading in what appears to be into the southerly entrance. A brief note. This is the personal audio recording Mike Maloney and Tom Brady made on the ground in Haditha. The official audio notes of their site visit, which were never intended to be made public. Three shots in the door. 
three shots, three gunshots noted on what would be the kitchen. What would be the kitchen door for house two? Special agents Maloney and Brady didn't visit Haditha until months after the incident, an eternity in forensic science. Still, they had no choice. If you want to understand the crime, you have to visit the crime scene, even if that crime scene is in a war zone. But it wasn't just the very real threat of an insurgent attack that Mike and Tom were up against, or the fact that the civilian bodies had long since been moved. It was that the crime scenes themselves had been disturbed. Because in the months since the murders, in both houses one and two, someone had scraped the blood off the walls, plastered the bullet holes, painted. Seven feet in from the door, two, three, and three feet from the wall. The wall on the left is going to be called wall one. Scanning wall one. The house has obviously been repaired and restuccoed, replastered, and repainted. Well, when we get to this house, there's just not a lot to do. The plaster and mortar has been scraped down. It's been replastered. We're documenting what evidence is there, but there's just not that much evidence there. It's gone cold. It's gone cold, and it's been cleaned up, and it's been lost as a result of the um, remodeling process. Okay, exit at house one, en route to house two. Time of entry, 1548. Maloney and Brady travel halfway around the world to Aditha. Enter house one, only to find that it's been remodeled. Then they press on to house two, only to discover that it too had undergone significant repair. Still, remarkably, they find some evidence. One, two, three, possibly four, five, six, seven, possibly seven gunshots in the kitchen door. I want to pause here because it'll be important later when we try and figure out which Marines are responsible for which civilian deaths and why they were either never charged or had their charges dismissed. So, the first real piece of evidence Maloney and Brady find in House 2 are seven gunshots in the kitchen door. The door is consisting of steel, glass, and a grate. We have three bullet holes impacting the lower part of the door, which is the steel structure. And then we have one, two, three... To repeat, four uh, bullet holes in what appears to be plexiglass or glass. The person the Marines shot at that kitchen door was Yusuf Salim Rasif. His wife, sister, and children were gathered in the back bedroom. You also enter through the kitchen. We enter through the kitchen, which is where the father was shot. As we go into the kitchen, uh, I turn down the hallway. I guess it's a laundry room to the right. Once again, my priority on the team Uh, I'm assigning Tom and myself to the most evidence-rich environments. Ours is to get down the hall and get into that back bedroom. We're good. Keep going. We're only going to have a couple minutes, so we need to concentrate on what we need to concentrate on. Okay. Which is the bedroom we're going to take? Looking down the hall. There it is. We're looking at it. Okay. We want to get into that back bedroom because, remember, time is critical. If I had 12 hours to work the scene, I'd meticulously work myself from the kitchen all the way back. But I need to go to where I know the evidence is going to be so that if our mission gets cut short, I've got that evidence. Location one, designated as the kitchen. Location two, down the hallway to a rear bedroom. There's one kind of camera. 
Okay. Uh, how do you want to do it? Wall one, wall two. I always go right to left. Okay. The opposite. Okay. Okay. Wall one, no visible bullet wound, no visible uh, bullet demarks, obvious uh, remodeling and construction. It was here, in this room, where the two women and five children were killed. The first thing we check for is we're told in the Marines' version of events that they threw a grenade in that room. Uh, We are also, and remember, at this time, our information is very preliminary. It's very sketchy. A lot of it's third hand. We're told that there's trouble identifying people in that back room because when the grenade went off, there was a lot of particulate smoke and everything else. So one of the first things we're going to do is try to establish visibility. You're told that the grenade went off? Yes. Wow. As I said, we don't know how accurate that's going to be. I haven't actually heard the statement, but one of the stories that we're getting is that the Marines could not effectively identify that they were women and children in that room because of the smoke and the other debris from the grenade that had gone off. So that's one of the first things we want to establish. There is absolutely no indication in that room that a grenade has gone off, none whatsoever. Uh, There's no seat of blast on the floor. There's no fragmentation patterns on the wall. Wall two, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, possibly eight, nine, ten, where they were expected to be found. The wall has been scraped and the wall has been redone. You want a bullet dig? Then we start to examine the walls for bullet defects. Once again, we can see where they've been patched over. Recap, wall described wall one under a state of repair, half painted, half replastered. Wall two is the window wall, uh, the right portion above the concrete to the plaster is bullet holes, possible impact sites, as described by S.A. Maloney. S.A. Blaine has dug into a defect and has located a bullet fragment. Are we sure what we've done? Okay, let's get you back. Suspected spent bullet. We start to dig into those holes. I believe we actually recover a bullet from one or two of them. And we do the same thing. We sample the area around them for DNA, even though it's been scraped down and it's been cleaned in the hopes that we may get some. We don't know what we're going to get, but we're certainly going to collect it and try. Moving along to the right side of the window appears to be repaired. Moving to wall three, again in a state of between repair and plaster, no obvious defects. Wall three has a window in it, right side of the window, clear. So what are you thinking in that room? You're not getting a story. No, I'm documenting a crime scene. Because without the blood being there, the blood really gives us a sense of dynamically what's occurring. And it gives us an area of origin of where that person was likely standing when that event occurred. We're not getting a story other than the evidence is there and we're collecting it. Okay, Mike, in light of time, you want me to mark and paint or just dig? Dig. Got it. Sounds good. Is this our last stop? Yes. This area is getting hot and we can hear some explosions and they're coming closer to our area. So at this point, we're realizing our time's about ended and we're doing a quick inventory. So we're getting a sense of if everything gets called off, Do we have enough or should we try to rush back in for a few more minutes? I think there's one measurement we want that we don't have in uh, the width of a hallway or something like that. So the determination is if we get called off, we can go and we can feel like we've done a thorough job. We've got what we need. And ultimately, that is what happened. That ended the mission. We were told from there we need to move back to the convoy and leave. 
Door has been shaved. No biological collection will take place in House 2. Gentlemen, are we complete? Okay. Evidence collected. Departing House 2. Departing House 2 at 6 at 15.55 due to a uh, tactical situation which demands our departure. House 2 and... So that's it. Mike Maloney and Tom Brady travel all the way to Haditha. All the way to House 2. Only, there's very little to examine. Very little actual forensic evidence to collect. They measure the length of the hallway, the width of the doorframe. They find some blood that's been painted over. Collect a few bullet defects, but that's it. After that, they're forced to go home. And that should have been the end. Not only of Maloney and Brady's site visit, but of the entire Haditha investigation. I mean, how do you charge someone with murder if you haven't collected any evidence? Except, it turned out, the Marine Corps had collected evidence. Remarkably detailed evidence. The kind of evidence they needed to successfully prosecute this case. They just didn't know it yet. This is Michael. And I don't know about you, but sometimes life gets so busy, I don't have the time to cook. But I still want delicious, healthy, gourmet meals. Enter Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals are always fresh, and never frozen. Each meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat the flexitarian and protein rich meals, and with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. Last night, I had the Moroccan style almond crusted salmon, and it was quick and amazing. And if you want more than meals, there are over 60 add ons like breakfast, on the go lunch, snacks, and smoothies to help you stay fueled and feel good all day. And if you're like me and you're always looking for gourmet options, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. You can always pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. So what are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash murderhouse50 and use code murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's murderhouse50 at factormeals.com slash murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run, You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6000 cash, give us each 3000 we give you this. Uh-huh. You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. 
introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. I saw women and children lying in their beds, in their pajamas, who have been shot. That image still haunts me. Um, there was another, I don't know how many were in that, I want to say one, two, three, four, five or six, somewhere around there, in that one bedroom. This is former Lance Corporal Andrew Wright. All right. <laughs> I first heard Andrew Wright speak when he testified at Frank's court-martial. Andrew was a fragile witness, as I remember it, barely able to answer questions. But he was also the most important, because he told the story of the photographs of the victims in House 2, and how he came to take them. Please raise your right hand. You swear that the testimony you shall give in the case now and hearing to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you God. Have a seat, please. Mr. Wright, can you state your full name and spell your last name for the court report? Andrew Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. Andrew's testimony captivated me. As broken as he was, Andrew seemed like the only Marine who took the stand in this entire case and knew right from wrong. In fact, unlike everyone else who testified, Andrew Wright was consumed by Haditha. It had destroyed his life. This witness, I will say, and I've disclosed this to the defense, previously formally in writing, this this witness suffers from extreme post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of this day, uh, and he can be unpredictable at times in terms of he's, he's, he's somewhat, he feels strongly about what took place that day, Your Honor. By the time Andrew took the stand, he was no longer in the Marine Corps. He'd been medically discharged. His PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, was debilitating. In fact, Andrew Wright's mental health was so fragile, the prosecution worried about his testimony. Still, he took the stand. Did you have the occasion on 19 November 2005 to go beyond the kitchen in house number two? In other words, did you go to any other rooms in house two? The only other rooms I went to was... um the rooms that had dead bodies in it. Okay, so you did go to a room besides the kitchen? Yes. Tell us about that. Um, I went to... Are you doing okay? I was mesmerized by Andrew's testimony. After Frank's court-martial, I was desperate to speak to him. I wanted Andrew to tell me without the pressure of a packed courtroom, the story of how he took the photographs, how they ended up in the hands of Mike Maloney and the NCIS. Little did I know I would spend the next six years 
trying to track him down. Okay, thank you, sir. That's all the clarification that I had. Okay, your excuse for now. Please stay in touch with the government counsel, okay? Thank you. Thank you, sir. Andrew left that courtroom in Southern California and disappeared. I searched social media, legal records, even wrote letters to what I thought were his parents. But every inquiry I made bounced back. A couple years in, I contacted the lawyer who briefly represented Andrew when he had been called to testify. But he didn't respond either. Finally, someone in Andrew's old unit told me they had a new contact for him. One that actually worked. So I wrote him. I explained I was a documentary filmmaker, that I had been part of Staff Sergeant Wooderich's defense team, and that I wanted to talk off the record. I also told Andrew I thought he was a hero. I still do. You see, without Andrew Wright doing what he did, without his pictures, we wouldn't know anything about what happened in Haditha. There'd be no hope for justice. I put that all down in an email and hit send. A few hours later, Andrew Wright wrote me back with a one-word reply. No. The next day, I went to an engagement party for an old friend. It was at one of those private clubs that dot Midtown Manhattan. I was there, making small talk with someone, drink in my hand, when my phone started to vibrate. I looked down, and it said, Andrew Wright. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I had waited for something like six years for this moment, and Andrew Wright was finally calling me in the middle of a cocktail party. And I never go to cocktail parties. I hate cocktail parties. Honestly, for a second, I just stared at my phone dumbfounded, in utter disbelief. And then I turned and walked away. I didn't even excuse myself. I just picked up my phone and said, Hi, Andrew. Can you hold on for a moment? And then, panic. Because... There was nowhere to go. It was loud, and there were a lot of people. I rushed into the hallway, and I saw a coat closet. Now, it was June in New York, so no one was wearing a jacket, and I figured maybe I could get some privacy in there. And more importantly, some quiet, because it was loud. I walked into the closet, closed the door, and could not, for the life of me, find the light switch. But you know what? It didn't matter. I just sat there in the dark, for the next two hours, finally talking to Andrew Wright. Now, I didn't record that phone call, because I promised Andrew that everything he told me, everything he said, was off the record. But our conversation in that coat closet convinced me I couldn't tell this story without him. Yeah, and it was pretty disheartening. One of the uh, corpses, or deceased, looked like they were shot in the back crouching over the bed, trying to hide, looked obviously to get cover. What I thought at that time was, how did this happen? And I wish I could have done something about it. Andrew was not part of the convoy that was hit by the roadside bomb on 19 November 2005. Nor was he part of any of the house clearings in which civilians were killed. Andrew was instead part of the Quick Reaction Force, or QRF, that was charged with medevacking the two Marines wounded in the attack to a field hospital. Then, later that same day, long after the wounded had been tended to and the fighting was over, he was called back to the scene once again, this time to deal with the civilian deaths. So we waited and waited and waited, and about when the sun set, we were called out. 
At that time, I didn't know what I was in for. And、uh, we arrived on scene, and there was a whole bunch of other Marines there in the unit. And、uh, out of nowhere, somebody just asked, "Who has a camera?" And I had always carried a camera on me since Fallujah, and I said, "I got a camera." So、uh, I was told, "You need to take photos of each of the dead corpses." And he handed me a sharpie, and you need to mark the dead corpses. Andrew went to all the places where Iraqi civilians had been killed: roadside, House One, House Two, House Four, and he carefully photographed the dead. The pictures, as we heard right at the start of this episode, are gruesome, horrific, tragic. The worst, by far, are the ones in House Two. Just looking at the dead corpses, I mean, they're little boy, little girl, about three, four years old, maybe four feet off the ground, maybe even smaller. And I remember putting like a number on one of their feet that was no bigger than my hand. But the assumption is there is going to be an investigation, right? That's what I assumed. Because when women and children are killed overseas, that there should be an investigation. Because last time I checked, I'm not in business of killing women and children. My heart kind of sank for not only the victims, but just trying to understand like how that occurred. It was a very small room, only fit maybe like a double-sized bed. You know, a dresser and I think a closet and a nightstand. That's about it. And there was a lot of human beings in one room. There was no way after I saw how the bodies were that that that's not it was not an accident. You know, as a marine, you know, having control over your weapon and every shot counts. How was that an accident? Andrew's story mattered to me for two reasons. The first we've already discussed. Andrew's pictures were the only irrefutable evidence in the entire Haditha case. But there was another reason I wanted to talk to Andrew: his response to the deaths, the response I first heard in a courtroom in Camp Pendleton, and then years later in a coat closet in Midtown Manhattan. Andrew's words and actions undermine the argument that nothing out of the ordinary happened, that this is war. That was the excuse made by the Marine Corps for why they didn't investigate the civilian deaths until after Time magazine started asking questions. It was the logic of the public affairs officer who lied in that very first press release. It was the argument made by some media personalities when the Haditha story first broke. For a time. It was even Frank Wooderich's defense: "This is war, and bad things happen in war." Andrew Wright was the unequivocal rebuttal to them all. I saw women and children lying in their beds in their pajamas, who had been shot. That image still haunts me. One of the、uh, corpses or deceased looked like they were shot in the back. Um, crouching over the over the bed, trying to hide, looked obviously to get cover. So, what I thought at that time was, how did this happen? And I wish I could have done something about it. Andrew knew as soon as he walked into the bedroom of House Two 
that a crime had been committed. That's why he took the pictures. That's why he held on to them for so long. That's why he waited for someone, anyone, to claim the photographs for a criminal investigation. But no one did. No one even asked about them. Everyone in the company knew Andrew had taken the photographs, that he still had them on his computer, but no one said anything. It was as if there was a collective decision, conscious or otherwise, to act as if the photographs didn't exist. But Andrew couldn't escape them. What do you do with the photographs? I stare at them, just looking at them. Maybe a way to cope with what went on. Yeah, like every night I just look at them. On your computer? Yeah. I don't know whether it was trying to desensitize myself. I don't know, I just couldn't get it out of my head, but at the same time, I just kept reinforcing it for whatever psychological reason. When Andrew first told me that story, I remember thinking that it was like the narrator in Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. You know, the man who hears the heartbeat of his victim under the floorboards. Only Andrew hadn't murdered anybody. He just heard the heartbeats. How does it start to affect you then? Um, at the end of the year, when I was still in Aditha, I ended up um, overdosing on benzodiazepines as a suicide attempt because I felt like I, I still had the photos. There was a lot of pressure that I had put on myself of what do I do with these? I mean, I know I can't just destroy them because the way I would, this is not right. And I don't want them, but no one's asking me for them. So it was, like I said, kind of an unspoken, are they covering it up? And if they are, I was in fear of the fact that if they're willing to cover up 23 innocent people, what's one more innocent person? So I never said anything, and I just held on to the photos. By Christmas, Andrew could no longer function. He stopped sleeping. On New Year's Day, six weeks after the incident, Andrew was medevaced to Germany and admitted into a psychiatric ward. His camera and his computer, with the photographs still on them, were sent weeks later. Eventually, Andrew was shipped back to Camp Pendleton in Southern California. By then, Tim McGurk's reporting had triggered the NCIS investigation. Finally, on March 22, 2006, four months after the Haditha killings, NCIS investigators came calling. Call comes in. They said, is this Lance Corporal Wright? And I said, yeah, who's this? Some agent, whatever. It's NCIS. And they had asked if I have the photographs. And I knew exactly what they were talking about. And I said, yes, I do. Take them. I don't want them. They asked for my computer and camera. Gave them that. And I just was really relieved when somebody qualified wanted the photos. Andrew gave the NCIS every photograph he had taken in Haditha. He also gave them his camera and his computer. By the time I spoke to him, Over a decade later, it was clear the whole thing, the incident, the photographs, the trial, still haunted him. On the one hand, you feel this burden of the photographs, that you can't destroy them because they're children, they're women, and you held on to them for an investigation. 
But once you hand them over, you feel like you've betrayed my Marines. I felt like I was the bastard of the battalion just because obviously they were trying to cover it up. And just because Lance Corporal Wright decided to go ahead and turn in some actual photos, now we have something to deal with. Andrew's photographs didn't just present a problem to Frank Wooderich's defense team. They presented a problem to the United States Marine Corps as well. Because if Andrew hadn't taken them, or if he had deleted them, there would have been no evidence, no trial, no scandal. Without Andrew Wright, it would have all gone away. But there were photographs of what happened in House 2. They weren't destroyed. They were handed over to the NCIS, and eventually they found their way to Mike Maloney. We looked at every photograph at a pixel level and scanned it looking for bullet defects. I spent more time in the bed with those five dead children and the two dead women that I probably spent in my own bed for a six or seventh month period. And it was haunting, it was disturbing. In the next episode, with Andrew Wright's photos in hand, Mike Maloney finally determines what happened in House 2. Murder in House 2 is a crowd network podcast in association with Buccaneer Media and Dakota Group. It was produced by Steve Jones and edited by Ed Eniot, with additional editing from Ed Barteski Jr. and R.A. Fetty. Executive producers for Crowd Network are Mike Carr and Mike Pearls. And for Buccaneer Media, Tony Wood and Richard Talk Hart. Original music by Joel Goodman, with additional tracks from BMG Production Music. Finally, if you'd like another podcast recommendation, check out Crowd Network's original called Death of a Sports Star. Each episode is about the lives of icons who sadly died way too young. The first episode is about Kobe Bryant. It's beautifully written and performed, and it's out now. Just search Death of a Sports Star in your podcasting app. I'm Michael Epstein. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in-depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era 
of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Three AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing four one one, night marchers, Operation Paperclip. Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters, it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Let's go. 